0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host Nellie Bailey. Coming up, Donald Trump has made the United States a nightmare destination for poor non-white immigrants. But a black Canadian activist says her country is no safe haven. Philadelphia celebrates Mahatma Gandhi along with Dr. Martin Luther King. And the leader of a small Caribbean country blasts the United States for its regime change campaign against Venezuela.
0: But first, one could get the impression from listening to today's black politicians that African Americans don't know or care much about what goes on in the rest of the world we spoke with professor paul Ortiz, a professor of history at the university of florida and author of the new book an african american and latinx history of the united states ortiz says the struggle for black liberation in the u.s has always been international
2: really from the very beginning it's been an international struggle and it has involved the connection, or or organizers, revolutionaries making connections between Mexico, Haiti, the United States, you know, Europe, and Africa, from the very beginning. And it was weakened severely when we went to a situation where we began to accept nationalism, you know, narrow nationalism, I should say, as kind of the default, where we say that well, you know, the U.S you know, we're the best nation on the planet. We don't need anyone else. Everyone else has got to idolize us. And we decided we were better than people in Mexico or or better than people in Haiti. And it's this kind of isolation nationalism, which really brings Donald Trump to power. And it's something which, to the contrary, that the histories that I'm trying to tell, the stories I'm trying to tell in this book involved Mexicans reaching out to African Americans and Bahamians and Cubans reaching out to dissident white people in Florida in the 19th century and beginning to make these create these coalitions which the US government clearly sees as a threat otherwise the government would not go after you know the black freedom struggle they wouldn't go after Marcus Garvey the, the government wouldn't go after the black Panthers, if they didn't see these efforts to create mutual aid and solidarity between groups as a grave threat to American capitalism.
1: Yes, when people talk about Black history, they speak of people escaping slavery by following the North Star and going to the north of the United States or to Canada. But lots of folks found freedom in Mexico.
2: Exactly. You know, African Americans and and other people of color in general know that the myth of Canadian progressivism is exactly that. It's a myth. And we've seen this recently with the expose of their prime minister in blackface. Right. And the reality of the Underground Railroad during slavery times is that African Americans found sanctuary probably as much or more in Mexico as they did in Canada. African-Americans found sanctuary among Native American uh, nations in the West. They found sanctuary from slavery even after the British Empire and the French Empires abolished slavery. And Mexico even made these overtures of providing sanctuary to escaped African-American slaves even before Mexico becomes an independent republic. And we know this because there were U.S. congressmen who tried to sue the nation of Mexico for, quote-unquote, lost property. In other words, so many African-American slaves were escaping to Mexico that the U.S. Congress was trying to come up with a way to sue Mexico for that lost property, in quotes, even before Mexico becomes a fully independent, sovereign nation. And it's these connections which the early radical black abolitionists, people like Henry Highland Garnett, who could speak Spanish, A person who, whenever Reverend Garnett had the opportunity, he reminded his audiences, he said, you know, we and the Mexican people are united around the idea of liberty. We have learned from their freedom struggle. You know, they've learned from ours. And Garnett was a person, just a giant, who spent time talking with leaders in Mexico. He also was in direct contact with many of the great Cuban liberation fighters, such as Antonio Maceo or José Martí. And it's these great connections between the Black Freedom Struggle and freedom struggles in nations like Cuba and Mexico that I believe we need to rediscover if we're going to talk about creating a new freedom movement in our own time.
1: Yes, and very few people in the United States know that Mexico's first president was a person that we certainly would call Black.
2: Exactly. You know, if you look at the leaders, of the Mexican War of Independence, and and now now we're speaking of Vicente Guerrero. We're also talking about people like Jose Maria Morelos. These are people who are indigenous, black, and European. They're multilingual. They're able to recruit freedom fighters in the Mexican War of Independence because they're telling people, they're telling peasants, they're telling slaves that the Mexican War of Independence, which starts in 1810, is all about ending slavery and trying to end the caste oppression of indigenous people in Mexico. This is how people like Morelos and Guerrero recruit people in the countryside to fight the Spanish empire. And if you think about this struggle in 1810, the Spanish empire is still really one of the strongest empires in the world. The idea that you would take up arms to fight the Spanish in Mexico is just insane because number one, if you get captured in battle, they're going to torture you. You're not going to have an easy death. It's going to be excruciating. So You had this incredibly epic situation where African-Americans in the U.S. were looking very closely at what was happening in the Mexican freedom struggle. And you see it in early African-American newspapers, the very earliest black newspapers in the United States, in New York and Pennsylvania, key heavily on what's happening in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in Africa. And Early black newspapers are also very concerned with pointing out to people that we need to start looking to the South. We would say now the global South, or what we used to call the third world, but most importantly, African-American newspapers were saying, we need to look to Mexico. We need to look to Latin America. We need to look to the Caribbean and stop kowtowing to the Europeans. Nothing of value is coming out of Europe during this long period of time compared to these great freedom struggles, which are really being waged in the South.
1: And yet the United States or people of U.S. heritage were actively waging aggression against not just Mexico, but Central America in efforts to spread slavery.
2: Exactly, Glenn. And one of the things, one of the dynamics to understand U.S. history, you know, the first century of U.S. history is that think of the U.S. as being surrounded, you mentioned this, by indigenous nations even European nations, nations like Canada, nations like Mexico, who are trending to end or abolish or do away with slavery. Out of all of the powers I've just mentioned, it's the U.S. to the contrary, which is trying to expand slavery through imperial expansion. You know, the U.S. invades Mexico to re-enslave African Americans and to spread slavery into the global South. The U.S. attempts to purchase Cuba in the 1840s and 50s, because there's so much U.S. investment in Cuban slavery, especially in the sugar plantations. But again, you 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 can definitely look at this as imperialism. But on the other hand, on the resistance side, all of these other nations and groups that I mentioned, you think of the Seminole Nation, for example, the alliances that it forges with African-American escaped slaves, these are all anti-slavery groups. I mean, they're fighting slavery. There's this incredibly intense battle that's taking place. In the United States.
1: So we have to see that the internationalist aspect of the black radical tradition is rooted in the need in slavery time to wage struggle against the United States and thereby make common cause, get alliances with people outside the United States and other national groupings within.
2: Exactly, Glenn. And we should say at the outset, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this. I'm really learning. I learned so much from studying with people like Cedric Robinson. You mentioned the Black radical tradition, C.L.R. James's Black Jacobins, the story of the Haitian Revolution, Eric Williams' slavery and capitalism. The struggle has always been international. And it's been African American and Black scholars who taught us that, you know, decades and decades ago. And unfortunately, we, in this country, in the U.S., the default seems to be American nationalism, especially white nationalism. And the entire premise of the book that I just finished is the idea that to do U.S. history right, you have to leave the country. Look at the U.S. from the position, from the vantage point of people from Honduras. Look at the U.S. from the vantage point of people from Trinidad. And then you begin to be able to write a U.S. history, which is both international But it's also relational. It's not just about American exceptionalism. And in the introduction, I tell people right away, you've got to do away with that. That is an ideology which everyone from Barack Obama to Donald Trump embraces. This idea of the U.S. is above and beyond any other nation on the planet. As long as we have that ideology, we won't even get to step one
1: but even by reading the old pages of the congressional record you can discover an america that is glossed over and hidden today in which senators and congress Persons of both parties openly talked about the mongrel races of Mexico and all these inferior peoples that the United States had to guard against who were very much like their own darkies.
2: Yeah, exactly, Glenn. So I went through people's papers like John Adams, James Madison, and when those so-called founding fathers looked nations like Mexico or to what becomes Venezuela in the early 19th century, people like John Adams are telling their fellow elites and really all Americans, you know, look, these revolutions in Latin America have nothing to do with the revolution that we had here. We had a real revolution. You know, our revolution was about locking in ideas of liberty and freedom and all these things. But black and brown people don't understand those things. And Adams was very clear about this. He's like, you know, if you have dark skin, you don't understand liberty. You don't understand freedom. If people don't believe me, they should just read John Adams's papers. He's very clear about this, that Mexican people, that African-American people do not have the mental capacity to enjoy or practice liberty. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this book, Len, is to get people, I almost said our people, I don't know, radicals, progressives, whatever. To stop looking to the founding fathers for the kind of political wisdom that actually many of our elders and ancestors had. So, when I often give talks about this book, I look out in the audience and I say, Look, 95% of us, or probably 100% of us in this audience right now, were not contained, were not thought of during the U.S. Constitution, the, the framing of the Constitution, except insofar as our value as labor we were not accorded any of the rights and even responsibilities that we think we have in this country by the founding fathers. It was generations of struggles waged by African Americans, by Latinx peoples, by immigrants, by working class people in general that got us to where we are now. Stop saying things like, well, if only we can get rid of Donald Trump, we can get back to the wisdom of the founding fathers. That's a dead end philosophy. And that's what I'm trying to use history to kind of liberate us from.
1: Yes, and black folks who have suffered atrocious violence at the hands of the power structure and of whites in general in the U.S. don't have a monopoly on that. The Texas Rangers killed about 5,000 Mexican Americans within a very short space of time around the turn of the 20th century.
2: Yes, Glenn. When we talk today about issues like reparations, like black land loss, I make the argument that we should connect these with the fact that, as you point out, law enforcement, the Texas Rangers, county sheriffs, even federal troops were involved in suppressing, killing, taking land away from both African-Americans, but also from Mexican-Americans, from indigenous peoples. I was just in Elaine, Arkansas, I took a group of students to help commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Elaine Massacre, which many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with, which occurred in 1919, where plantation elites in Phillips County, Arkansas, a Delta County, very rich soil, very rich land, were able to enlist the federal government in massacring African-American farmers. And then when they, when they moved them off the land by force, they seized that land. And that land now in the Delta is owned by big corporations and big plantation owners. The same pattern, Glenn, is found in Texas and West Texas in the Southwest, where you used to have a lot of small farms owned or operated by either indigenous groups, maybe small uh, Mexican-American landowners, and they were driven off their lands by law enforcement, by the Texas Rangers, as you point out, but, but other law enforcement agencies as well. And then fast forward the 1920s the creation of the U.S. Border Patrol, which is really a labor repression outfit. And my dear friend Kelly Lytle Hernandez has written a great book called Migra, the History of the Border Patrol, which if you're interested in black and brown working class liberation, you do, I believe, have to connect the repression, but also the resistance of Latinx and African-American workers in this country.
1: Well, we're talking about how folks who think they know something about Black history or to understand the internationalist connections, but what about Latinos? Are they aware of their connection with African Americans in common struggle?
2: (laughs) It's always an educational struggle, Glenn. It really is. And that knowledge ebbs and flows. And you're not going to be surprised when I tell you that we make positive gains in educating each other and ourselves when we can organize social movements. So, for example, in the 1960s, if you look at Chicano journals, newspapers, leaflets, struggles, this knowledge that Chicanos, that Latino people, that Puerto Ricans are part of a global struggle for liberation is very lucid. It's being taught. It's in our songs. It's in the way we hold our meetings. It's in even as far forward is the 1980s. It's in Puerto Rican organizers creating anti-apartheid organizations to help fight for the liberation of Black South Africans. But again, these are examples of people educating themselves and each other during movement struggles. And my argument in the book is this is what we need now. We need to recapture, to recreate these social movements that allowed us to make these connections with each other to tell these stories about our mutual aid, about solidarity. The big thing in the book is, you know, how do people create solidarity? And you create it through action and you have to have education, right? You have to know each other's histories, but you have to start by frankly knowing your own history. And this is why I love oral history. I'll, I'll tell my students, you know, go interview your grandmother, your grandfather, you, know, an, an elder, Ask them what sacrifices they made to help get you to the point that your family's at. And again, stop giving credit to the U.S. government. I'm I, I so astonished, Glenn, to turn on the radio. Just yesterday morning, there was a news article. I can't remember what station, but it was talking about the U.S. government granted women the right to vote. And I'm like, they did what? You know, women fought and suffered, were arrested, were beaten, were tortured for the right to vote. The U.S. government didn't grant them anything. And that's the mindset that we have to really try to get out of. But again, I think the education, we can make these forward leaps in education and a better understanding of U.S. history internationally and also relationally if we can get some movement energy going
1: largely because of Hispanic immigration. The United States, according to the Census Bureau, is going to be a majority not-white nation by around 2042. But I remember, and it was only a few years ago, it seems, when in some Black circles, there was much trepidation and unease because latinos were about to overtake black americans as the largest minority group do you think there was any cause for that
2: no but i I think i mean it's understandable though for people to be concerned about you know any change that happens in the society one of the things and my students talk about this all the time Glenn, because i work with a lot of students from miami-dade county you know i teach at the university of florida I work with a lot of Haitian students, a lot of first-generation college students from the Caribbean or from Latin America, and there's concern about what direction the society is going in. And I have to be very honest with you, many of my students feel like the U.S. right now is opting for the apartheid response to the fact that, as you mentioned in 2042, the U.S. is supposed to become a majority-minority country. What I mean by the apartheid response is the policies that have been emanating from the White House, the federal government and the state governments, but really the past quarter century, refusing and denying the rights of citizenship to 12 million plus immigrant workers and keeping them in a permanent category of poverty and immiseration. And yes, Glenn, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm concerned if you keep those 12 million workers poor and just above the level of starvation, I'm worried because it creates a chaotic situation, a chaotic society. But I'm also worried that we're also not understanding that the categories of black and brown, for lack of a more accurate descriptors, are not absolute. In, in Florida, in California, in New York, we have many, many Afro-Latinos, for example, I talk to an increasing number of Haitian-American students who tell me, look, I'm Hispanic and I'm black. And you'll love this, but I, my African-American Latino class, we just finished reading Perry Thomas's Down These Mean Streets. And this is a classic book by a movement activist in the 60s who says, I'm black and I'm Puerto Rican. I refuse to, you know, to draw the line between those. And I think that's the kind of educational work that we need to do We can't just assume that people are going to be down with the struggle. But here's what we can assume, that this government, this racial capitalist regime, to borrow Cedric Robinson's terminology here, is going to do anything it can to continue to divide us. And as long as we continue to be divided, we're going to be picked off one by one by one.
0: That was Professor Paul Ortiz speaking from Miami, Florida.
1: Immigration to the United States is way down this year as President Trump succeeds in making coming to America a nightmare experience. Canada takes in even more immigrants proportionately than the United States. Black Canadian activist and writer Robin Maynard is author of the book Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to the Present. She warns that her country is no safe haven for Black newcomers.
3: Absolutely not. You know, obviously the United States has been in the headlines for a variety of reasons in Canada and all around the world. And it's really tempting for, you know, countries like Canada that also have a long legacy of racist institutions and racist treatments of migrants to suddenly start comparing themselves favorably to the United States. But what's really important to remember is that although the numbers are smaller, for example, we still see that, you know, migrant children are being detained and have been detained in Canada long before the Trump regime. If we look also at what's being called the so-called migrant crisis, Um, In the United States, we're also seeing, you know, the massive targeting of the Haitian asylum seekers, for example, that had crossed the border from the United States into Canada seeking refuge, many of whom are going to be deported from Canada now at this time. So I think it really is more helpful to look at the many harmful continuities facing migrants and especially, you know, my focus really is the impacts on black migrants in this country.
1: In fact, you have many immigrants who've been in Canada quite a while, some of them arriving as children, who face deportation daily.
3: Absolutely. So in Canada, it's important to realize that over half of the Black population in the country was born outside of the country. So what that means is that for Black people here, that means that migration is something that is always at the forefront issue and migrant injustice is something that impacts many of our communities on a daily basis, the potential to face deportation, to lose family members to places that they potentially have not been since they were a child is, in many of our communities, a regular reality. There are things like stop and frisk and being disproportionately stopped by the police it does not end in jail or prison, but can often as well end in deportation and removal.
1: In the United States, one can judge the treatment that people from overseas or just across the border will get based upon the treatment that people from their countries or from their regions get who have been in the United States for a while. That is, black refugees to the U.S. get the worst treatment, brown refugees not so much better, white immigrants much better.
3: Absolutely. So even if you look to, for example, who's being targeted, we're not looking at, for example, Europeans overstaying their visas. We're not looking at Americans or Canadians in each other's countries overstaying their visas, even though that makes up a significant amount of what could be called so-called illegal immigration. But we know that that's a racially loaded term. That's actually just a term that is only applied to the presence of Black and brown people, particularly those who are poor.
1: And of course, Canada has its own long history of racism.
3: Absolutely. Um, You know, we need to look, of course, to the history of the fact that slavery as an institution was legal in Canada, that the massive discrimination against having Black migrants come to the country is something that is absolutely foundational to Canada as a nation state itself. I think it's also really important that in Canada, we can see that, you know, the afterlife of slavery, to use Hartman's work words, is present and has been present, you know, since slavery was abolished in the child welfare system. It's present, you know, where Black mothers are being disproportionately surveilled and having their children removed. It's present in the criminal justice system, where Black communities are incarcerated at a rate that's three times their population. And it's even been used to forward the intersections between the criminal justice and the immigration system. So, for example, in the United States, you see that in the mid-1990s, it really fortified a time of deporting people that were considered so-called criminals with intensive impacts on black communities. Now, that's something that was also forwarded in Canada in the 1990s amidst, you know, really an anti-black hysteria where they made it easier to remove black people that were considered, you know, so-called serious offenders. But in often cases, it was linked to things, you know, like drugs and other kinds of minor crimes.
1: But one would think since Canada has a higher proportion of its population that originates elsewhere, and more than half of the Black Canadian population came from somewhere else, that there would be deeper and more effective support groups for immigrants in Canada.
3: Well, in some ways, I mean, you can see that the Black organizing and Black resistance in this country has very often been focused around a nexus of migration injustices and that's something that's you know been true for generations at this time and continues to be really important so an example of that is uh, about a month ago black advocates along with many other legal supporters throughout the country and especially with the leadership of black and muslim and somali communities led a public campaign to stop the deportation of Abdullahi elmi who had arrived in canada at a child refugee at the age of 10 and was placed in child welfare who never actually applied for his citizenship status So then ended up actually facing a deportation that was overturned really only because of these last minute efforts that were organized, of which I played, you know, a small role in to stop that deportation.
1: What kind of inspiration should people who favor immigrant rights get from Canada? And are there any examples of U.S. mobilizations in support of immigrants' rights that Canadians should follow?
3: Sure. I mean, I think that what is really important and what looking closely at the experience of a lot of Canada's Black population tells us is that Black rights and migrant rights are often one in the same and always need to be conceived of as one in the same. That the architectures of confinement, of controlling Black people's movements have never only resided in the criminal justice system, but have always been integral to border control as well. So what that means is that we really need to understand these issues as Black issues. It's not that also Black migrants, it's that Black migrants have continually been the target of these forces historically and as well now. So I think that when I look to groups in the United States, for example, like the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, I think they're making that issue very clear that Black migrants are essential if we're going to talk about what it means to have Black freedom in North America. I think that it's really important for us as we are increasingly talking about the issue of prison abolition and prison being, you know, one of the most enduring legacies of the transatlantic slave trade that we think about, border abolition and the end of kind of border controls and immigration detention and jails as also integral to black justice.
1: Well, certainly no nation in the world comes close to comparing with the United States in terms of mass incarceration. But do you see differences in great degree uh, between the U.S. and Canada in terms of xenophobia?
3: In terms of xenophobia, I think it's important to note that it's very much both on the rise in Canada and that xenophobia has been a long time practice within Canadian uh, public policy, if sometimes couched under more polite euphemisms. But for example, after the arrival of a significant number of Haitian asylum seekers who had cross from the United States into Canada, the provincial government of the province of Quebec actually, you know, governed on trying to stop this so-called migrant crisis with very xenophobic terms that are very anti-black and ended up actually electing a government that pledged to reduce immigration, but also to favor European immigration, which again, is not a racial undertone, that's straightforward uh, racist and xenophobic hostility.
1: And I'm sure those French Canadians excused that kind of political behavior behind their own desires for independence, really masking racial bias.
3: That has historically absolutely taken place in the ways of sort of that understanding of being a colonized people, never extending to understanding, you know, the colonization of indigenous communities in Quebec, in Canada, as well as the actual treatment of black communities more broadly.
1: Which regions of Canada are more friendly to immigrants of all colors and most friendly to black immigrants, if any such exist?
3: So for me, I don't find it helpful to compare, for example, Quebec versus the rest of Canada to say who is more racist, because I think what's important to note is that on a national level, despite, for example, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's famous now tweet that said, diversity is our strength in the wake of the popularization of Trump racism, that it has actually been pursuing only behind closed doors, racist policies like trying to close the border to the largely black asylum seekers crossing the border and increasing the number of deportations. So while you might sometimes see a language being couched to distract us from these realities, if the structural kinds of harm and impacts are still harmful and xenophobic and racist, then we just need to call them what they are. And that's something that you can see throughout Canada.
1: On the international scene, in fact, we see Canada following almost in lockstep with U.S. policy, for example, regarding Haiti, but also in most of the rest of the world's trouble spots.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think that as much as Canada does not have as much of a role just because of being economically less powerful than the United States, but it has you know, frequently moved exactly in step with the United States' global empire Whether we look to, for example, Canada and the United States orchestrating together, actually, from Canada, the coup d'etat that happened in Haiti. Whether we look to the massive presence of Canadian mines that are causing, you know, displacement across the continent of Africa, across the Caribbean. We see that, you know, the forces that are actually forcing people to move are seen in the United States and as well in Canada having a very important responsibility in both not interrupting and actively perpetuating those same root causes. Of displacement so there is a loyalty to empire and a way of enacting that same empire across the world what i was trying to do in linking how black populations in canada really show us the intersections of a need for abolition of the prison industrial complex as well as the abolition of borders i think really shows us right now as we have some comrades in montreal that are working to stop the creation of a new laval immigration detention center it shows us the dangers you know, of political reform, because of course, the government announced that they were going to create reforms after a hunger strike of migrant detainees that happened a few years ago. But instead, those reforms ended up actually being the creation of a new immigration detention center. Lawyers who I've spoken with recently have told me that, you know, the numbers of migrants in Laval Immigration Detention Center now are largely Black, are significantly Black population. So we're, we're seeing the creation of new immigration detention centers when we actually need to be seeing an end to these kinds of facilities, to this kind of captivity.
1: That was author Robin Maynard speaking from Montreal, Canada.
3: All this year, the Philadelphia
0: Saturday Free School has been publicizing the Life and Philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian National Liberation Leader, on Thursday, October 3rd, the free school will hold a special program titled Mahatma Gandhi and Our Single Garment of Destiny, Our Inescapable Struggle for Peace and Justice. Philadelphia free school activist Jahan Chowdhury says a study of Gandhi must, include Dr. Martin Luther King.
4: Well, as we've been emphasizing throughout this year of the 150th birth anniversary of Mahatma Gandhi, to celebrate Mahatma Gandhi, particularly in this country, is to also celebrate his greatest interpreter, who is Reverend Martin Luther King, and the connection between the two movements, the Indian freedom struggle and the Black freedom struggle. And in this history, Reverend James Lawson is an extremely important figure. As soon as he became a uh, Methodist minister, he became very politically active. He was even jailed for resisting the draft during the Korean War. And soon after that ended, he went to India itself and lived for about three years in a Gandhian ashram in the city of Nagpur, where he studied nonviolence very in-depth from many people who had been involved in Gandhi's movement. Subsequently, when he came back to the United States, was living in Ohio, and I think working at Oberlin College at the time, he encountered the Reverend Martin Luther King. And this, we're talking about the late 50s. And they got to know each other, and King learned that Lawson had this very first-hand experience with studying Gandhian philosophy and Satyagraha, the philosophy and strategy of nonviolence, he realized how crucial Reverend Lawson could be to the civil rights struggle in the South. And he asked him to come down to uh, Tennessee, to Nashville, to work on the campaign there. And so uh, Reverend Lawson helped establish both the SCLC in Tennessee and the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee there while he was, in fact, studying at Vanderbilt University and was involved in a number of campaigns to desegregate uh, establishments in the city of Nashville. And for this, he was expelled from Vanderbilt University. And subsequently, he was a very key architect in the uh, nonviolent movement in the South, not just in Tennessee, but also the freedom rides that would occur throughout the South to enforce the Supreme Court rules on desegregation of transportation. And he was also the the figure who... uh, invited Reverend King to Memphis to uh, participate in the strike with the sanitation workers where Reverend King himself would be uh, assassinated. And so through all this, you get a picture of the importance of Reverend Lawson uh, in the struggle for black freedom and peace generally in the United States, but also in this important history of the worldwide significance of Gandhi and Gandhian ideas about uh, nonviolence. So, Reverend Lawson was at least
1: as devoted a student of Gandhi as the Reverend King himself.
4: Uh, That's correct. Uh, In fact, King has been uh, reported to say that Reverend Lawson was sort of his coach of Gandhian uh, nonviolence. And so he, uh, as you mentioned, he was very, uh, at least as important, and he was has also had this career spanning after what's considered the formal end of the civil rights movement after the assassination of Dr. King, uh, where he's been engaged in movements for peace and justice throughout the country for many years. And uh, for the past several years has been based in a church in Los Angeles, where he's continued to be very active into his uh, 90s. Many people today who give lip
1: service to Dr. King's doctrine and Reverend Lawson's practice don't seem to understand nonviolent direct action, that this tactic was designed to bring the contradictions of the system of oppression to a head by deliberately creating crisis. Instead, these folks these days seem to think Nonviolence is a way to tamp down crises rather than to bring them to a head.
4: That's right. I think a very important part of that has been a total whitewashing, even elimination of the radical and revolutionary history of nonviolence, both in this country and elsewhere. And trying to declaw these figures like Martin Luther King, Reverend Lawson, and I would even say Mahatma Gandhi himself, Uh, as you mentioned, their conception of nonviolence or nonviolent resistance is very different from non-resistance. The uh, whole idea was not for the person resisting to surrender or submit, but it was to act on a, a moral imperative for non-cooperation with the evils of society, and as you said, bring the contradictions to the fore, expose the evils of society for the masses, and give an impetus to the masses to act on the moral principles that they already held. And two of the figures we mentioned, Reverend Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, both paid the ultimate price for their devotion to these tactics and this philosophy by like giving their lives.
1: Yes, and in fact, this misinterpretation of civil disobedience sometimes goes to the ridiculous lengths of saying that Dr. Martin Luther King, back in his day, submitted to arrest and therefore paid for his crimes and that that's what protesters should do they should just submit to arrest and pay the price and by their personal sacrifice
4: make their protest uh, that's right and i think an important part of that has been removing the idea of protest or direct action from any sort of broader theory or ideology because the uh, whole idea of nonviolent resistance or satyagraha was one, to be an individual or actually collective example with groups of people, but also to connect it to a broader critique and ideology and understanding of the uh, issues at play and the possibilities uh, forward and how a movement can grow to confront these challenges. And it's, it was something that required an immense amount of bravery and sacrifice on the part of the individual civil resistors but also a a great deal of thought, which has totally been uh, ignored. I mean, we hear a lot about Martin Luther King's example, even Gandhi's example, but we rarely do we read any of their writings. Rarely do we delve into the philosophical and political ideas and debates that they were in, how each of them had a a conception of nonviolence as a struggle for peace and justice against a fascist and authoritarian uh, system.
1: Yes. Gandhi's objective was to bring down the regime, in his case, the British colonial regime in India, and to have solidarity with those around the world who were trying to bring down their regimes, some of whom were engaging in armed resistance.
4: Uh, That's correct. And I think also broader than uh, bringing down the British regime in India was bringing down the British regime in India in order to bring down an entire world colonial system, in order to really make a transition from one historical period of Western domination to a new period of a more humane and just world order. And of course, that would involve a variety of tactics, but at the heart of it was the strivings of the masses and the possibilities for what human beings could be when they move past the violence, which is at the heart of Western civilization, I mean, rarely do we hear these things. I mean, rarely do we hear that Mahatma Gandhi said that Western civilization was not based on worshiping God, but on worshiping the devil. In that sense, he meant that violence and brutality that was at the heart of the Western system of white supremacy was really based on worshiping the devil. And rarely do we hear that Martin Luther King, when he was assassinated, had in his pocket a sermon called, uh, Why America May Go to Hell. I mean, these were very deep and radical critiques of not just economic and political, but civilizational of the uh, global system of uh, white supremacy. And now they are presented to us as these sort of meek and uh, mild-mannered symbols, which they were definitely not. And do you expect Reverend Lawson this week to
1: give a talk on why America is still going to hell? I think
4: in uh, one way or the other, that will be at the heart of his uh, speech, although it is not an inevitability. I think what King was trying to say, and I think what Reverend Lawson will say, is that we have to uh, choose a way out of this path to hell. We have to turn to other forms of morality and humanity. And what we're trying to accomplish through this entire effort is to present the American people, the American masses, an alternative to the uh, violence and destruction we see at the heart of our political system. And we see the premier alternative, the premier uh, alternative morality and ethics in the history of this country to have been the black freedom struggle, particularly the ideas presented by Martin Luther King and what he represented.
1: And of course, the Philadelphia Freedom School in the previous year celebrated the life and times of W.E.B. Du Bois. That's right.
4: Du Bois was also a very uh, important link in this uh, history that we mentioned. Of course, his uh, life preceded, the bulk of his active life preceded uh, Martin Luther King's, although he died on the very day as the uh, March on Washington, though he was exiled in Ghana. But Du Bois was a great interpreter of this uh, civilizational uh, critique of the West and its domination of the world. And he did a lot of work in uh, both analyzing the uh, Black condition in the United States, the global color line, and the struggle for world peace. And of course, he was one of the early Black radical activists to highlight the importance of Gandhi and the uh, Indian freedom struggle back in the, starting in the 1920s.
1: Well, this year is almost over. Has the Philadelphia Saturday
4: Free School decided what the next year's theme will be? That's in the works, although at the moment we're considering extending this focus on the civil rights movement and the idea of nonviolent resistance and recovering that history into the next year. We hope to continue our relationship uh, with Reverend Lawson and continue to learn with him. Uh, Also, because uh, at this event, uh, another thing which we'll be doing is presenting citations from the city of Philadelphia, to a number of civil rights and peace activists, including uh, Diane Nash, who was another person in the struggles uh, alongside Reverend Lawson in the Freedom Rides and in Tennessee, and Bernard Lafayette, who was another figure. So we hope to be in touch with them, perhaps bring them to the city of Philadelphia as well, and, and overall continue in this uh, time of crisis to present the masses with a alternative morality, other options, which they're uh, definitely uh, crying out we have this history is so crucial and it's been uh, taken particularly from the younger generation so we really see that as our objective to educate the masses particularly the youth about this history away from the lens of academia and the uh, education system
0: that was Jahan Chowdhury of the Philadelphia Saturday Free School Chowdhury is also the comments editor. For Black Agenda Report.
1: Heads of state from all over the planet journeyed to New York City last week to attend the yearly opening of the United Nations General Assembly. Among them was Ralph Gonzalez, Prime Minister of the tiny Caribbean island nation of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Prime Minister Gonzalez criticized the global north for polluting and warming the planet, denounced the US economic blockade of Venezuela, and celebrated new movement towards unity within the African diaspora.
5: This week the Secretary General of the United Nations held a summit to confront our persistent paralysis in the face of the accelerating climate catastrophe. Stripped of the crafted eloquence, the summit reconfirmed that there are basic litmus tests for commitment to climate action, enforcement of binding emissions targets that result in a global warming of less than 1.5 degrees, investments in clean air and renewable energy, and provision of easily accessible adaptation financing that prioritizes the most vulnerable nations. Surely, the catastrophe in the Bahamas must finally put to rest the fiction that arbitrary and inaccurate measures of wealth are of greater import than the self-evident vulnerabilities of small island developing states. If measured by per capita GDP, The Bahamas is a high-income nation, too rich to be eligible for many forms of concessional financing, assistance in building resilience, and post-disaster support. Measured instead by size, location, geography, and the immutable laws of nature, the Bahamas' vulnerabilities are starkly apparent. Before the fury of Mother Nature, our islands are equally vulnerable and must be equally assisted by any mechanism that purports to address the impacts of climate change. There is small island states' exceptionalism, which must be factored juridically and non discretionary in the architecture of global partnerships on this existential matter. St. Vincent the Grenadines has long considered major emitter's te- failure to set and honor ambitious mitigation pledges to be an act of hostility against the very existence of small island developing states. As hundreds lie dead in the Bahamas, And thousands more climate refugees are denied safe, temporary haven in the industrialized capitals of the nearest major polluter. Those acts of hostility are brought into sharper relief. No nation that contributes to killing us, no nation that closes its eyes, ears, and doors to our suffering, truly can with a clear conscience proclaim friendship towards us. A neighbor who pollutes our residents, who brings or facilitates noxious emissions into our homes, who burns fires at our boundaries and smokes us out, commits egregious wrongs against us, and is justly subjected to the requisite remedies of compensatory damages And restraining injunctions. Mr. President, a different type of metaphorical storm is wreaking havoc on the bedrock principles that undergird this organization. The rising tide of hegemonic, unilateral, interventionist interference now threatens to inundate entire nations while responsible states stand askance from their responsibilities to speak and act in defense of central charter tenets. Everywhere, north, south, east and west, the hegemonic imperial hand is visible and oft times the metaphoric eagle threatens to unleash war and disorder in unilateralist vainglory. What all the world peoples want is simply peace, dialogue, security, and prosperity. That's all we want. The sustained and coordinated attempts to engage in externally imposed regime change in the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela is but one egregious example of the current trend. We are witness to an illegal economic blockade, airily similar to the one against Cuba, that we annually and overwhelmingly decry as immoral and anachronistic. We are in possession of indisputable evidence of extensive foreign interference in the sovereign affairs of the Venezuelan people and the frequent unambiguous threats of military intervention. We are complicit in an international farce where the members of the United Nations General Assembly seat one government as representatives of the people of Venezuela, while a self-described regional agency within the United Nations, the Organization of American States, seats a different ill-defined entity, a fictitious creation of foreign powers. We are mute in the defense of the principles that have bound us together and stared us clear of world wars for the last 74 years. Principle and international law cannot be sporadically or selectively applied. Whatever the challenges face in Venezuela, they are exacerbated, not remedied by hegemonic interventionism and compounded by our inconsistency. The solutions to the conflict in Venezuela are well known as they are in other conflicts. The facilitation of peaceful dialogue, the cessation of outside interference or threats of intervention, and firm adherence to charter principles, including the respect for sovereignty Those who advance a different agenda are acting against the interests of the Venezuelan people and are becoming willingly or unwittingly co-conspirators in undermining multilateral diplomacy. The vulgar and unjustifiable imperialist weaponizing of trade and the banking system must be condemned by all right-thinking nations which are keen to uphold internationally agreed rules-based global trade and financial systems as fundamental to peace, security, and prosperity. Mr. President, without hyperbole, we must now all recognize that the Palestinian peace process is mortally wounded and near death. Our silence is complicity in the increasingly brazen unilateral usurpations of international law. Neither the two-state solution nor regional peace can survive the ongoing disavowals of bedrock agreements and the enabling silence of our international community. The Palestinian people deserve more than lip service and hand-wringing. The General Assembly and the Security Council must be heard unambiguously on this matter. Mr. President, this year, as St. Vincent de Grenadine celebrates the 40th anniversary of our Reclamation of Independence, from a lengthy but temporary colonial rule of 216 years, we continue the process of removing historical blinders, reassessing our challenges and opportunities, and renewing our linkages with continental Africa. This year, after separate visits to the Caribbean by the esteemed brother presidents of Ghana and Kenya that captured the regional imagination, the Caribbean community CARICOM has approved in principle the establishment of an ABCD Commission for further practical elaboration with the African Union Brazil, which is the home of over 100 million persons of African descent, the 25 members of the Association of Caribbean States, and the African diaspora elsewhere, particularly in North America and Europe. The Africa-Brazil-Caribbean Diaspora Commission places the fractured global might of peoples of African descent within a single institutional framework Within that, unity is undeniable and untapped strength.
1: You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.